Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John 16. We are rapidly approaching the end of Jesus Christ's ministry as we get into John 16. Rapidly coming to that point where Jesus Christ will be taken in the Garden of Gethsemane and tried before wicked men. John 16, however, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the disciples are still on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. We recall in John 15, Jesus Christ taught that he was the true vine. He spoke of abiding in him. Last week we recall Jesus spoke and taught in regard to the response that we can expect from the world. The world being that system that Satan has set up, as we spoke about this morning, Satan's attempt, his false kingdom, his attempt at mimicking the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the dominion that he's been given over the world and its system. And Jesus Christ said, marvel not if the world hates you. That the world hates you. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We finished last week in John 16, verses 1 through 4, with Jesus Christ telling the disciples why he was telling them these things. Why was he telling them that the world would reject them? Why was he warning them? Well, he said in verse 1 of chapter 16, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. That word meaning to fall, to stumble, to fall back, to fall away. Don't be surprised when this world system rejects you. You know, it's been kind of a discouraging week for Bible-believing Christians as the Supreme Court passed down a decision to overturn, effectively, California's Proposition 8, which established marriage to be between one man and one woman. And as I've read the blogs and the commentaries and such throughout the week, one of the things that has been highlighted time and again by Christians is this reality that to speak against sin is bigotry, but to stand up for what we believe is seen very hostily by the world. In other words, it's hostile for us to say that homosexuality is sin, but it's not hostile for the world to condemn us for our beliefs. That's what Jesus Christ was speaking of in John 15. Marvel not, he says, when the world rejects what you have to say. When the world rejects the way you're living. When the world rejects the gospel. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that it's hate speech to believe what we believe, but it's acceptance and liberation to believe what they believe. Don't be surprised because... Jesus Christ warned us. And he warned us, he said, so that we won't be offended. So that we won't fall away. So that we won't stumble when the world does reject us. Well, this week we're going to be looking at something far more encouraging. The title of the message, if you have your notes, is The Disciples and Amen. We have quoted 
from this passage. I think I've probably quoted more from this passage in the John series than I have from any other passage as we've gone throughout the weeks. I've alluded to it. I said, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Well, we're there this week. John 16, I've alluded to verse 8 many, many times. We're going to talk about it in just a few minutes. We're in a series on discipleship. This is the seventh message of that series, but the focus of this message will not actually be so much on our role in discipleship as, well, as much as it will be God's role. It's in many ways going to be an extension of what we heard this morning from Colossians 1, 9-29. The reality that everything that we have and anything that we have that is a redeeming quality that will please God, that is a virtue in this life, is rooted in Christ and His Holy Spirit. We have spoken for some weeks now in Sunday school about discipleship. And we've defined discipleship this way. We talked about it even this morning. Taking a person from where he is in his relationship with Jesus Christ to where the Word of God, to where Jesus Christ wants him to be. We have mentioned that discipleship is as much about ourselves and our relationship with Jesus Christ as it is finding others to disciple. We spoke then about the cost of discipleship and the reality that while our salvation is free, in that we did nothing to earn it, we did nothing to be worthy of it, and there is nothing that we could do to be worthy of it. Yet, Jesus Christ taught that those who would be his disciples must count the cost. That while salvation is free, it does come at a cost. Now, when the dust settles from the series and uh, the discipleship series that we've been doing in Sunday school, and as we see what Jesus Christ has been teaching his disciples from chapter 13 on, as all of these things begin to apply and sink into our hearts and lives, we will see all the more that though it is our privilege to live out the life of discipleship in our lives, it is not our power, it is not our ability that makes this life possible. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that allows discipleship to even be possible. You know, an automobile is really an amazing piece of machinery, isn't it? I've been working and I've even been working on my lawnmower a little bit, trying to get it running a little bit better. Yesterday I changed its oil, I changed its air filter, I changed its spark plug, pretty much everything that you can do outside of opening it up and getting into the guts. And as you think about something like an automobile, or something even more simple, like a lawnmower, you think about the interplay of parts that goes into a vehicle getting you from point A to point B. My wife and I have been doing a great deal of driving this summer, driving to Florida and back, driving to Colorado and back. As we drove for hours, and we drove straight through, which means we were basically moving for 20 to 22 hours straight when we went to Florida, all of the parts that had to be operating effectively for the car to get from point A to point B without a problem is incredible. It is truly amazing the interplay that a vehicle goes through every second as the fuel injectors are injecting the fuel and the pistons are, are then, uh, with the explosion that, that happens in the engine, the pistons are firing. All of the things that are going on, the various pumps, the brakes, the fluids, amazing. 
There are other technologies in this age that are also fairly incredible. I think about a computer. You can't even see the transistors in a the computer. They're, they're, they're smaller than our eyes can perceive. Millions upon millions of them on a piece of plastic the size of your fingernail. And as electricity goes through those transistors and the various other components of the computer, that's just one piece of it, as they interplay one with another, as the electricity pulses through various magnets, various pulses, uh, the timing of a little piece of quartz that's bobbing back and forth in the computer just like in a watch. All of these things coming together to make a computer do what it does. The speakers, as I speak into this microphone, and sound is amplified out to you. We have a computer up there that's hooked into the same microphone and is recording my voice. It's going to go on the internet. All of these technologies and the incredible intricacy. But you know, as we think about all of these technologies, all of the potential that these technologies possess, They're all useless without power sources, aren't they? If I were to go out there and drain all the gasoline from my vehicle, it would still be a precision vehicle. It would still be an amazing piece of human engineering, but really it would be an amazingly high potential piece of scrap. It couldn't go anywhere without fuel. A smartphone, a tablet, a computer, these speakers, they're amazing. But without electricity, without batteries, without some power source, they're basically just glass and plastic and metal. That's really all they are. Without a power source, all of these tremendously potent and potentially useful instruments become useless. As we transition that over to our spiritual lives, all the potential in the world is useless without spiritual empowerment. I attended two graduation parties this week. One was for Brady, the other was for Jordan Johnson, perhaps many of you remember the Johnsons they attended here a little better than a year ago for a few months. Is that their graduate his graduation party yesterday as well? And whenever I go to a graduation party, one of the things that really the first thing that comes to my mind is when I was in high school, when I was in college, I'd hear all of these guys get up and give their, their motivational speeches and as they did so they'd always say, What? Look at the potential that is in this room, right? Look at the potential that is in this room. And when I was in high school, that was really motivating. As I got to college and I began to get more into my studies and I began to see the men and women around me and I began to understand more about God's word and character, I realized how little of that potential is ever going to actually be realized. How few people that are in a college environment that are working hard for whatever they're going to do will actually realize any potential for God. And so, now when I speak to people, I tell them that the potential is indeed there, but that potential is really worthless unless it becomes productivity. 
unless there is empowerment, potential remains nothing but potential. As we think about our spiritual lives, may I say first of all that you, say who? You, all of you, every single one of you, myself included, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made us beautiful creations. We are indeed very complicated, very precise. And the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you became even more beautiful as you became a new creation in Jesus Christ. I will say that you have all the potential in the world to do amazing things for God, to see lives change, to see men and women encouraged, to teach, to disciple, to become a disciple. You can do it all. But for all the beauty, for all the precision, and for all the potential, you are nothing without a power source. You are nothing without the Holy Spirit compelling you, empowering you to do the will of God. Just as food is the power source by which our physical bodies move, the Holy Spirit is the power source through which you can affect spiritual good, spiritual change, spiritual power in this life. And without the Holy Spirit's enablement, without the Holy Spirit as a power source, you're a bunch of useless potential. In John 16, we'll begin in verse 5 as we left off in verse 4 last week. Jesus Christ is teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through the lives of his disciples. Through his teaching, we will learn about the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the work of God, but also the means by which the Holy Spirit can best use us to do his work upon this earth. So if you have your notes there, we're going to look at two insights into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both in you and through you. Two insights of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in you and through you. Now, before we look at the first one, I'd like to, to begin by clarifying something. Look at verse 5. Jesus Christ says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Jesus begins here in verses 5 and 6 with a bit of a confusing statement but one which, when we understand it, gives us insight into the this, this spiritual state of the disciples. And that, what is, that is what is very important about verses 5 and 6. It gives us great insight into where these disciples are as Jesus Christ has been teaching them over these past many chapters. The circumspect reader will perhaps think back to some of the lessons that we've had, some of the, the sermons that you've heard already, and perhaps think back to John 13, 36. When Jesus announced his departure, Peter said this, Lord, whither goest thou? Or perhaps you might have thought back to Thomas's question in John 14, 5, when he said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus Christ responded to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life that we would call. And so when we see Peter asking God, asking Christ where, he go, where he's going, when Christ announced that he was leaving. And then we see Thomas asking Christ where he's going when Jesus Christ announced he's leaving. Why would Jesus Christ say in verse 5, 
I go my way in that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? The answer lies in verse 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Jesus' statement does not necessarily imply, as he stated it, that no one has ever asked him where he was going before. But as Jesus Christ has taught these disciples, and as he's revealed the reality of his death, the disciples didn't get it. We know that throughout the scriptures, throughout the book of John, every time Jesus Christ says that he, he has to be lifted up, every time that he said that he's going to his Father, they've been confused. They haven't understood. They didn't realize that Jesus Christ was going to die. And so his statement doesn't so much to serve, or it doesn't serve as much to say that no one has ever asked him, but rather no one has ever taken the time and had the discernment to understand his teaching on his own day. And so, if sorrow is filling their heart, it can't be, and it is not because they understand he's about to die. It's because he's leaving. And if you can perhaps think of this in the terms that Jesus Christ would have been referencing it, what this means is that the disciples are not sorrowful. They're not upset because they know Jesus Christ is about to take upon himself the sin of the world. Because he's about to be scourged and beaten and slain upon the cross. They're upset because he's leaving them. There's a bit of a selfish motive in the disciples' hearts for their sorrow. They're sad because they know what a loss it's going to be to them. They're not sad because of what Jesus Christ is about to go through. In other words, their motive for sorrow was not an understanding of the issue. It was regret over his absence. And it was kind of a selfish motive. However, as Jesus Christ says these words, the idea that he's getting at is that regardless of their understanding and regardless of their motives, Jesus reminds them that it is very expedient that he goes away. Because when he leaves, the Comforter will come. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, is that it is expedient. He says, regardless of why sorrow has filled your heart, it's expedient, it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. This is now the fourth time that Jesus Christ has announced in the book of John the coming of the Comforter. The one whom we know to be the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And Jesus' greatest assurance that he could give to them, the greatest amount of comfort that he could give with his departure at hand, is that they would receive one whom, at least in terms of their ministry and their ability to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, would enable them in a way that they had never found would empower them for ministry in a way that they could not even possibly understand. And with that in mind, with that foundation laid, let's look at these elements of enablement. The first one being, the Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for evangelism. The Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for evangelism. As Jesus Christ declares the Comforter will come, notice what he says in verse 8. And when he, that's the Comforter, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And so Jesus Christ announces the Comforter will come into this world, and as he is coming into this world, he is going to interact with those of this world. When the Comforter comes, he will, he says here, reprove the world. That word reprove in the original languages means to convict, to bring to light, or to correct. So the Holy Spirit will come to convict to the world, to bring something to light in the world, to correct the world. Do you remember last week, in John 15, verses 22 through 24, Jesus said that his words and his miracles unmasked the sin that was rooted in their hearts. Let me read it to you again. If I had not come and spoken unto you, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hated me hated my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. We remember, as I taught last week, that Jesus Christ was not saying here that before he came into the world and before he did works, there was no sin in the world. But rather, when he came into the world, he corrected men's misconception of what sin was because he is light. And light shined into the darkness and made the darkness known. And so it was very clear what was light, it was very clear what was darkness, and it was very evident who was following the light and who was following the darkness. Well, Jesus Christ teaches here that when the Comforter comes, he would continue the work that Jesus Christ performed in the hearts of the unbelieving world. He would convict, he would correct, he would bring to light, he would reprove. And there are three areas, three elements of the reproof of of the unbeliever through the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ presents here. The first, he says, is that he will reprove, convict the world of sin. And as we look at verse 9, it is specifically the sin of unbelief. The Holy Spirit will reveal to every man, every woman, and every child the one sin for which all men are condemned, the refusal the rejection of Jesus Christ and refusal to believe on Jesus Christ and to salvation. First John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. We know that he came to bear upon the cross the sins of the entire world. And the standard then by which a man is counted as saved or unsaved, the standard is belief on Jesus Christ. When every man stands before God one day, the Revelation tells us the books will be open and another book will be open called the Book of Life. And Revelation tells us that whosoever was not found written in the Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. The names that are in that Book of Life are the names of those who have believed on Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, unto salvation. And so the Holy Spirit, His ministry is to convict, to convince, to correct the world, and to show the world their sin, which is the sin of unbelief. But there's something else He's going to convict the world of. It says, and of righteousness, 
And verse 10 says, Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. The Holy Spirit will convict men of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, revealing to every man, to every woman, to every child, that righteousness is perfected in Christ. And personal righteousness for them is found only through Christ's righteousness. And so we add that next layer of conviction, whereby a man recognizes that he must believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. He recognizes that he falls short of Christ's righteousness, and he can never attain unto Christ's righteousness. And so he needs Christ's righteousness to be applied on his behalf. Convict the world of sin. Convict the world of righteousness. And third and finally, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. And verse 11 tells us, because the prince of this world is judged. That term, the prince of this world, is one found a few times in the New Testament and is always speaking of Satan, the devil, the great deceiver, the great accuser of men who has been given authority over this world. We talked about Satan's kingdom this morning. Satan is the prince, the ruler of this world. Now, he does not have all authority, for he is still under God's authority, but God has given him dominion over this world and over its system. And so as unbelievers are convicted of the reality of their unbelief, as unbelievers are convicted of their falling short of Christ's righteousness and their need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, they will also be convicted of judgment, revealing that Satan and that this world system and all that's in this world system, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Every man, every woman, every child that is loyal to this system is guilty and is therefore on the path to judgment, damnation before a righteous God. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the unbeliever. And may I just mention that this is the only recorded ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart of an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit does not illuminate the heart of an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit does not teach the heart of an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit does not empower the heart of the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit does not mediate for the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit serves only to convict, to convince the lost of their need to believe on Jesus Christ, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That is the Holy Spirit's ministry in the heart of the unbeliever. Now, as we consider this, this first point is the Holy Spirit's enablement for evangelism. Where do we fall to what the Holy Spirit is doing with unbelievers? Well, certainly we all responded at one time to that conviction. We all believed on Jesus Christ if you were born again believer in this room. We are now saved from that kingdom of Satan and from the power, the authority of, of Satan. But as we consider our role, as we consider where we fall in this, we recognize that this is a template of what an unbeliever needs to recognize. This is a template of what we need to be telling unbelievers. We need to tell them that they're sinners. We need to tell them that their sin has placed them on the path to judgment and that that judgment according to the Word of God, is hell. 
as that translates into the book of Revelation following the millennial kingdom, it will be the lake of fire. Eternal fire. But we need to tell them of Christ's righteousness. That though they can do nothing to earn salvation, though they can do nothing to be worthy of salvation, they don't have to. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear their sin. So that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And that if any man will, by faith, believe on Jesus Christ, the true belief, whereby we humble ourselves before him, we recognize ourselves to be sinners, we have that heart of repentance, that change of mind that leads to a change of action, as we believe on Jesus Christ, we will be clothed in his righteousness. And we can be saved from the judgment that is to come. And so it gives us an outline. It gives us a template. You say, Pastor, I talked to unbelievers and I don't know how to witness. It's right here. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Tell the unbelievers that. And why is it so important that they hear these three things? Because these are the things that the Holy Spirit will be working on their heart about. These are the things that as they sit there and they listen to you and they hear the scriptures spoken, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? As they hear the scriptures in their ears, the Holy Spirit will be impressing upon their hearts sin, righteousness, judgment, sin, righteousness, judgment. And so if we preach these things and the Holy Spirit is convicting them of these things, and they certainly are without excuse. And they have everything that they need to be able to respond properly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But may I give you another reason why this is so important? It's important because it teaches us once again, as we've seen many times throughout the book of John, that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts men. It's not men that convict men. It is your duty and my duty to tell men of sin of righteousness and of judgment. But it's not our job to convict their heart. It's not our job to make them feel guilty. It's not our job to manipulate them into heaven. It's not our job to force their hand. It's not our job. We don't go to a door, knock on the door, make our presentation when they try to close it. We don't slam it open and say, no, you're not. I'm not leaving until you accept Christ. That's not, that's not what we do. We don't force people into salvation because we can't. It's not our job to convict men's hearts. It's our job to deliver the message. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict men's hearts. And we dare not bear upon ourselves the responsibility that is not ours to bear. It is difficult on us when we bear that responsibility because it's a responsibility we can't fulfill. But it also does exactly what we talked about this morning. It releases us from our dependence upon the Holy Spirit and makes us feel as though it's us that's doing the work. I'll never forget, I was eight years old. I had led two of my good friends to Christ at the age of five, their names were Spencer and Caleb. And uh, eight years old, we had moved to a new house. I had not seen Spencer in some time. And my parents 
asked me one day, they say, hey, do you remember Spencer back where we used to live? And I said, yeah, yeah, I saved him. I saved him. And my father was very quick to correct me. He said, no, you didn't. You led him to Christ, but you certainly weren't the one that saved him. He was very quick to correct me, and I'll never forget when my father said that. It impressed upon me so heavily that I need to be careful, that I am not detaching myself from the power of God that worked through the message that I delivered in Spencer's life. That's a burden we dare not bear. The Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for evangelism. Second, this evening, as we look and continue to look into the passage, the Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for personal growth. He's your source of enablement for evangelism. He's your source of enablement for personal growth. Verses 12 through 15. The Comforter's ministry, we know, is not just to the unbeliever. In fact, the Comforter's ministry is not primarily to the unbeliever. We have mentioned already many ministries of the Comforter in our hearts. Many of the ones we haven't mentioned, you are perhaps aware of anyway. In this passage, Jesus focuses upon one particular ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, in my life, as a believer, as a disciple. And it is, I suppose, from an earthly perspective, as I meditated on it, one of the most important. Now, I say from an earthly perspective. Let me explain to you why. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whosoever he shall, excuse me, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Jesus Christ is mentioning here that the Holy Spirit will not, he's not coming down, he is not indwelling them in order to highlight himself, but rather to highlight the Word of God, the things that these men will hear, the preaching of these men through the Holy Spirit, the illumination that we'll be speaking of here in a moment. Not only does the Comforter convict the loss of, of truth, excuse me, but he also guides the saved into all truth. This promise will be reiterated in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. The apostle writes this, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but, the same, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. The teaching there of 1 John is this. The Holy Spirit illuminates us, teaches us the Word of God, truth. And as we learn truth, and as it's applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we abide in Christ. And as I mentioned already, we call this ministry the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby the believer may know and come to understand spiritual things through the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our conscience. Through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to read the Word of God and to understand it. 
through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to try the spirits, as 1 John 4 tells us to do, whether they be of God or not, to discern truth from error. Through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to compare Scripture with Scripture to grasp the character of God. These are all, all elements of the ministry of the Holy Spirit through His illumination in our hearts. And this is why I stated that, at least from an earthly perspective, this is the Comforter's most important function. Now, as you think about some of the other means, some of the other things that the Comforter does, he seals us into salvation. That's pretty important. He bears in us the fruit of the Spirit. That's pretty important. But through his illumination, we have the understanding of all of these things. Through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can understand what we have been quoting in Romans 6, 1 through 4, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can understand that He has sealed us unto the day of redemption. That He is the earnest of the purchased possession. That He can fill us. That we can bear fruit through Him. That He can manifest Himself through us. And if we didn't have His illumination, we couldn't even understand Him. As you read the scriptures, as we study the scriptures together, if you're understanding anything of what I'm saying, outside of perhaps the ways that I might jumble it up, if you're understanding anything that the Word of God is saying through me, you're understanding it through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in your heart. If you understood that great plan that we presented this morning in Sunday school, beginning at the age of innocence and working itself out through the millennial kingdom, if you understood that, you only did so because you understand the broader working of, the whole, of, of, of God throughout each age through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And this is why it's so important that we don't grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit of God. And as we conclude this evening, this is my warning to all of us. As we consider the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we consider the reality that the Spirit's role is to teach us the Word of God, to reveal to us these truths about God, just like gasoline in an automobile, just like a battery in a cell phone, just like that cord that plugs into the wall, we as believers are powerless without a constant stream of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. He is the very fuel source through which we are capable of ministering in Christ's name and unto Christ's glory. He is the very means by which we are capable of drawing out truths from the Word of God and applying them to our lives. He is the very means by which, if we are going to know God, as we've been learning about in Sunday school, He is the very means by which we're going to be able to understand and know God. But as I just warned you, just because we're saved, just because the Holy Spirit indwells us, this by no means implies that He is constantly filling us. Just because by God's grace we have been made capable of spirit empowerment, it does not mean that our tank is full of gas. It does not mean that our battery is fully charged. We receive some stern warnings in Scripture regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. 
And as we close, I'd like us to look at one of those warnings. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We'll begin reading in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needed. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Here's quite a list of what you were and what you are. What you shouldn't do now that you're a believer, what you had done, what you shouldn't do, what you need to do now. As we run down that list, you'll notice that between verses 24 and 29, there is no conjunction and. It's a list. Do this, do this, and we're lying, speak truth. Be angry, sin not, neither give place to the devil, and that stole, still no more, and no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, and grieve not the Holy Spirit. His warning here is linked to everything that was just mentioned. And as we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, we reduce the Spirit's ability to teach us to empower us, to use us for His purposes. The warning is parallel in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, where Paul warns the church against quenching the Spirit of God. The idea being that your actions as a believer can suppress the work that the Holy Spirit is trying to do both in you and through you. That's quite a warning. It's quite a warning that we not quench, that we not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because He's our power source. A lot of times when I'm out in the yard, especially with my little girls out there, I'm running the hose, maybe watering some plants, and the girls will be fascinated by the hose. And I'll kink that hose 
and the water will go down to just the dribbles or cease altogether. And when I release that hose, that water shoots out. Sometimes the girls are looking at it like this, sometimes not. It just depends on the situation, but that water will shoot out of that hose. If you've ever kinked a hose, you're quenching the ability for that water to flow through that hose. You are, in a manner of speaking, grieving the water's ability to flow. We can do the exact same thing in our spiritual lives. We can kink that hose, that hose that is allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. We want righteousness. We can suppress our evangelistic effectiveness. We can suppress our own understanding of the Word of God. And this suppression will come at the hand of sin, of selfishness, and of carnality. Two lessons this evening. The Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for evangelism. Sin, righteousness, judgment. The Holy Spirit is your source of enablement for personal growth. The Holy Spirit working in us and through us as we allow Him to do so. The degree, however, to which this enablement, this illumination is beneficial to you on a daily basis, on a practical basis, is entirely dependent upon the degree to which we are allowing the Holy Spirit to flow in us and through us. As we close, let me link this again to this morning's message. Everyone serves someone. We are either serving God or we're serving our flesh, the world, Satan's system. We're going to serve one or the other. Question is who?